Well, I'm ready to go whenever you're ready to go. Absolutely. Welcome to the worst of the best podcast. You wanted the best. Well, they didn't freaking make it. So here's what you get. From Canada. And Florida. Ryan and Drew. Welcome to the Worst of the Best podcast. I am your host, and with me today, I think you're the top returning guest that isn't part of the original, well, my brother. You hold the title for most returning guests. Drew, how you doing? I am very, very good, Ryan. It is a beautiful December afternoon here in Florida. We reached an absolutely chilly low of about 55 yesterday. I couldn't believe it. So we're just rolling with the punches down here. I'm set to make a big holiday trip. So I'm glad we could squeeze this in beforehand. Do you have to do any holiday traveling? Wait, I want to get back to your temperature. So you said it was it was a chilly 55 degrees Fahrenheit? <laughs> it was a very chilly. I, I would actually call it a very chilly 55 degrees Fahrenheit. Here. Okay. So for our Canadian listeners, that's about 13 degrees Celsius. That's like a early spring morning. Right now, minus 16 Celsius. That's three degrees Fahrenheit. It sounds so dirty when you say it like that. Negative 16 Celsius. I wouldn't know what to do with that. Well, we did have a winter vortex come through, as they say, and it's supposed to go up to at least five degrees next week for the Christmas break or Christmas week. So five degrees is a nice balmy 41 Fahrenheit for you. Very good. Very good. So some of the snow will melt. It will create an absolute mess. You know, you'll deal with that for the remainder of the winter, I suppose. Yeah. Oh, it will get colder. And just in the nick of time, our family will be flying. For those who care or listen, who know me personally on a personal level, family and I, uh, we sold our house here in Quebec. And we are flying back to Victoria, British Columbia, a suburb or a little town called Souk, just north of Victoria, on Vancouver Island. So if you want to come uh, get me and uh, get mad at me for all my past episodes regarding some of my worst picks, that's where I'll be starting in February. I can't wait to go back to really the most moderate and best climate in Canada is actually on that island in Canada. So we paid to an island in Canada. Well, it's actually officially an island. It's called Vancouver Island, not the city of Vancouver. This Vancouver, the city is like on the mainland, but there is a island that looks like a cucumber just west of the mainland. You would recognize it if you saw it like, oh, that's it. And we're on the southern tip of that island, right above Seattle on a map. Oh, okay. So you're going to be way over there in the in the Pacific time zone. That is going to make our never-ending conversation about which time zone yes. each of us are in. It's going to make it a little more relevant, I think. <laughs> you know, it's funny for our listeners, what Drew's referring to is every time I talk to him, I don't know what's wrong with me. I always ask him, what time zone are you in? And I know you're in Florida, but the reason why I ask is I think there's two time zones in Florida. You are right. Yes. Uh, the panhandle of Florida, which for all intents and purposes, we should refer to as South Alabama. Let's be clear. Okay. The panhandle of Florida is different time zone. I don't know why they did that. I think most of the reasonable people in Florida would vote to remove that issue if we ever got the chance. I think most reasonable people would also eliminate the issue of the time change twice a year. Okay. You guys do that in Canada too? Oh, yeah. Yeah, of course. <laughs> Come on. 
I really, we we could have a lot of these conversations. Oh. Uh, <laughs> well, that that would get very confusing because if I said I'm in the Eastern Time Zone, but I'm an hour behind you, that would get very confusing. Do you know that there's a state in the United States that does not observe the daylight? Yeah, time? They're, they're probably the same provinces that do the same in that same like it's that longitude area. So mm-hmm. I would imagine it's, I, I think it's Saskatchewan maybe, because I, I don't know the prairie states, like what their time zones are, but central time, and that never changes. I, I believe it's Indiana that just does not do Bless their hearts. that changing nonsense. Yes, yes. Join us on our next episode where we give the worst of the best time zones. I'm going with Pacific. That's what I'm going for. The so worst? A front runner. Yeah, yeah, I'm calling it a front runner. Well, again, we disagree. The worst is definitely the East Coast because what I love about the West Coast time zone is like we can watch sports at four o'clock in the afternoon. We can watch the late games at seven o'clock in the evening. It's great. For sports watching alone, I watch late shows. Like uh, I used to watch like David Letterman stuff back in the day. So I used to watch David Letterman at 8 30 at night. It was nice. Dude, what do you do afterwards? That's always been my question. Go to sleep. You go to sleep. You go to sleep at nine o'clock. Look, would you stop it? I go to bed at ten, ten thirty, like a normal adult. All right, here we go. We are now doing our Stone Temple Pilots Part Two. Their sophomore effort. The album is called Purple. This is a favorite of both of ours. Stone Temple Pilots is one of our favorite bands. Like our show states, we're the worst of the best. What we do is we don't pick the best. The, the world picks that for us. And fans around the world that are Stone Temple Pile fans, would I would imagine most of them would argue that Purple is probably their peak album. And I'm going to say, for me, my opinion is this is the best album they've ever, ever made. Other great albums, other great songs, but this one I don't think was ever topped. You remind me quite often during our discussions, don't reveal which one you think is the worst. Are we allowed to to talk about things that we consider the best? Always. Okay, always. Well, yes, then I agree with you. Purple is the best Stone Temple Pilots album. Yeah. It is re-listenable at any point during my life. I haven't outgrown it. I haven't uh, drifted away from it in terms of my musical interests. It's not exactly what you hear on the radio right now. For people of a certain age that grew up with a certain sort of music being out there uh, in the pop culture, this is absolutely one of the best rock albums of its generation. Yeah, we can say rock now without any kind of hesitation. There's, there is a couple songs, we'll get to them, that sound a little bit still from that uh, cousin of grunge, but they have really separated themselves with this album. Heavy chords, incredible solos, incredible chorus harmonies, uh, songs that build up and crescendo, jam sessions at the end of songs. It's just a rock album. At the end of the day, this is an incredible rock album. Heavy, dirty. I love it so much. I've listened to it in preparation for this episode. And I just kept listening to it. I was like, oh, I gotta listen to it one more time. You know, I gotta make sure I know what I'm getting into here. And I, I just, I forgot in a weird way. You know, time goes on. I mean, you just, I, I don't listen to the same album every day for 25 years. So I haven't listened to this like the way I am now, almost probably over a decade of just straight on listening. Because I listened to it ad nauseum and rightfully so back when I was a teenager. When this came out, remind me of the year 94? It was released on June 7th in 1994. Yeah. I was 18 when it came out. Oh, that is a great, just an absolute great coming of age year. And you're striking out on your own, both in your musical tastes and in your real life. I was 10. I was 10 when this album came out. (laughs) We talked about the first album came out in 1992. So I was eight. 
it was very unlikely that I was going to get my hands on a cassette or a CD of that album. We had a lot of discussion about how you came about your recognition of the Stone Temple Pilots and how I did. Uh, mine was more controlled by the MTV and the radio experience and how the singles were pushed to me and the rest of the world. I wasn't much older when this album came out, and so it was sort of the same thing. There were different songs that I was exposed to in different ways. Ultimately, I did not buy this album when it was released on June 7th. Did you? Oh, yes. You were first in line. Well, I don't know about that, but I definitely, back in the day when you had to go to literally go to the store, you know, stand in line, and I held this CD in my hands absolutely anticipating a very good experience and a very good experience I got. Yeah, I would have absolutely gone to the store to buy this CD. I was Do you remember just, the name of the store? There was a few that we went to all the time. There was one, oh, A&B Sound. That's what it was called, A&B Sound. A and B sound. Yeah. For me, I would have gotten a record like this if it had come out when I was of age of buying these things. I would have gotten it at the Virgin Record Megastore. Yeah, we didn't have That's Virgin. Where I would have, yeah, I would have gotten it at the Virgin Record. Maybe but. in like a big city like Toronto or Montreal might have had a Virgin Record store, but uh, we didn't have that conglomerate in Victoria where I'm from. But A and B sound was the big place to go for stereos and CDs and all that good stuff. Yeah, if you want to hear our love of, of Stone Temple Pilots and how we became a fan of them, what they meant to us in, in our younger years, go check out part one where we covered the album Core because we could get into that. And so much like a sophomore effort, no introduction is really needed. We can just roll right into what this album is and what it means to us right now and little things about the songs. This is one of my favorite parts of having these discussions is actually going back and researching not just some of the critical reception of the album, both when it came out and then over time, but also to look into what was sort of going on with the band at the time. This album came out in June of 94. Their last single from Core was Plush. It was their fourth single, fifth if you count a radio promo. Plush won the Grammy for Best Hard Rock Song in April of 94. Two months later, SDP is dropping their next album. So they're capitalizing on having just won a Grammy in their category for one of their biggest songs. Another thing that was happening at this time was two months prior to Purple being released, but one of the songs was featured as the main and only single for a major motion picture. Yes, The Crow. The Crow. Did you see The Crow? I saw it. Oh, absolutely. I saw it in theaters. Of course, I saw it knowing that Brandon Lee had already passed uh, passed away or died on set, literally. He died on set while filming that movie. I remember watching it, again, as a teenager. I was 18 years old, big into action films, and seeing this on screen, such a fun film. I remember watching it and hating it at the same time and loving it because it was like, oh, my goodness, this is terrible. He was going to be an explosive new star on the big screen. And I knew he would have been somebody that I would have loved to have seen for years to come in action movies and what have you. His charisma, his good looks, his fighting ability, everything was there. And I was just so heartbroken watching this performance, knowing that this was a this is all we're going to get. It makes you wonder whether or not they would release a movie like that under those circumstances today. Exactly knowing that people would go to see it like you did. You look at what Marvel is going to do with T'Challa and the character, how they're going to revolve around Chadwick Boseman's death and whether or not to continue that series, knowing that everyone is going to see those movies with just an inevitable sour taste in their mouth, knowing, well, this guy played this character. There's definitely not going to be a sequel. Brendan Lee is not appearing in any further movies. If this movie is good, it's going to be the best thing he ever did. And, and then it's over. Well, um, that's the same thing I have with uh, Heath Ledger. 
passed away before the release of Dark Knight. Absolutely. Same idea happened. We were watching this, and I think their intention was to use him again in, in part three of that trilogy. That could have deprived us of the wonderful memes and voice caricatures of Bane. I don't know if we could live in a world that didn't uh. have bunch of frat boys emulating that for three years on end that's true um, actually so yeah heath ledger's death was worth it after all i just put a positive spin on yeah. it is all i we'll get to that song but i yeah we'll get to that because I, I actually had no idea that, that song was a single let alone the first single on the album the way that stone temple pilots were riding this wave riding this wave of a grammy win and a, another hit single and a piece of a major motion picture that people liked and giving a vibe to that movie the way that soundtracks did at that time and i think still do to a certain extent stone temple pilots were kind of on top of the world and their debut of this album was huge it sold three million albums in the first four months it went on to sell a total of six million it was number one on the billboard chart uh, of all the albums released the week that it was released and it stayed there it spawned three singles two of them were number one on the rock charts one of them is one of the biggest singles released that year, bar none. This was a very successful album, both in the planning and the execution. Purple, one of the top 500 rock and metal albums. It's one of the top 100 guitar albums. It's one of the top 10 hard rock albums released in 1994. Rolling Stones named it one of the top 50 grunge albums. The way I view the word grunge and what it instills in maybe someone's mind, maybe it is grunge or maybe they are grunge. I don't know. I don't think they are. It's the same way people say like hair metal. It's something we just say, but hair metal sounds derogatory. And I hate using that term because there's some incredibly talented musicians and bands that I love that quote unquote may fall under the hair metal category, but it strips away what you're really enjoying putting a label on it. I guess hair metal does sound different than grunge. The bands do sound different under those categories. Grunge is such a pigeonhole time okay, where bands like Pearl Jam are still touring. I don't think, are we still calling Pearl Jam today after all this time a grunge band in 2020? There's probably five or six bands that you would just always throw into that bucket. I understand what hair band means, and I almost think that that's sort of a coincidental moniker rather than a genre-defining one. Can you be a hair band if you're bald? Yeah, Judas Priest, lead singer there. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) If you play grunge music, it sounds kind of grungy. There's no (laughs) physical appearance that goes into that other than maybe flannel. Good old flannel. You sent me a message on Facebook and said, hey, look, last time you got the evens and I want the evens this time you said. So you wanted the evens on this on this album. And I have the quote unquote odds. If you were to say to me, Ryan, you have to have only the songs that are odd on this album or the songs that are even on this album. The worst songs on this album are the even numbers. It doesn't mean that's what I thought that you would say. Yeah. And not because I don't like them, but if I was like, man, every odd number song, that's killer. That's killer. That's killer. That's killer. So it's going to be interesting to talk to that start of the album. It's called meat plow. Have you ever used a meat plow before? I've never used Scott Weiland's meat plow. Let's say that. Meat plow would actually be a great band name. Some of those song names that come out of this era, and I just go like, what on earth were they thinking? It's this, in the late 90s, the WWF had a character that they just named Meat. They named him Meat. Meat Plow is sort of an extension of that. It was like a funny word that people said in the 90s. They thought it was cool. I think we all know what they were referring to. I don't know. What what are they referring to? Tell me. Well, I think it's a sex type thing. Look at that. Look at that little callback to the debut album. So Meat Plow kicks off the album right away. Place for a day full of rain. 
What a great intro, and it's actually very similar to their intro of Core uh, with Dead and Bloated. But the same kind of feeling of it's a little bit slower. They got faster songs on this album, like a faster beat songs. This is again a little bit of yeah grunge, a little bit of that slow drudgery type sound, but but a little bit lighter than Dead and Bloated, and it has a more constant rhythm throughout. And then we kick into a really dirty guitar solo. Just the guitar, the solo, and the uh, overlaying of the other guitar work that's going on. This is this is just a rock piece right away. I completely agree. I, th- I actually would say it's a stronger introductory song oh, yeah. than the first album. Even though we talked about how memorable the lyrics of Dead and Bloated are, we also talked about how it's probably a two-minute song that went on for five minutes. That's not what we have here. No. The timing of Meat Plow is... Um, 3.37. 337 is more tolerable. It's actually almost one of the longer songs on this album. This album is a tight ship. It's 46 minutes. I mean, 47 minutes almost. Oh, killer, no filler. I mean, we don't have an instrumental song on this album. We don't have a spoken word song on this album. We do have a bonus song that may or may not be included. It can't be. Nobody's in it. Bonus song does not feature any members of Stone Double Pilots. No. (laughs) Now, there's a hidden track that starts about 40, 45 seconds after the 11th track, Kitchenware and Candy Bars. And the track is called My Second Album. And for all these years... All these years until researching, I've never Googled. I don't ever Google albums that I've listened to for decades. I just think I know everything about them just because I just. Oh, I do. Yeah. You're a good man. So I did for this, obviously for this podcast, because I don't want to sound more than a moron than I am. So I used to think that it was Scott, because he's very versatile in his voice, that it was him singing like a jazz crooner. I'm like, oh, that's very clever. But I would have bet my thousand dollars that it was the band playing. I completely, completely was fooled for decades. Yeah. Do you want to speak to who is actually singing? The hidden track is called My Second Album. It's a really, really funny song. Mm -hmm. It's a fourth wall breaking Mm -hmm. song. It constantly references how the singer wants his second album to sell well. He wants you to enjoy it as much as he enjoys Johnny Mathis. Uh, But (laughs) that is (laughs) these little inside jokes for Stone Temple Pilot fans. But this was actually sang by a man named Richard Peterson, who was a pre-existing artist. They bought this song off of him and they included it. There's a lot of times on this album where Scott does really, really different things with his voice. And it's not like he did it on one song and the next song as well. He bounces back and forth, back and forth from a country artist to a psychedelic Britpop band and more. The bonus song is out of the question. It would even be my pick. There's a song that I 
like less than that song. It's a clever enough song that it's funny. And it, uh, but yeah, it's got nothing to do with the Stone Temple Pilots other than the fact that they liked the song themselves. It's from a 1985 album. This song was already nine years old and the quality of the recording is very well done. They were doing the radio interview promoting their upcoming album. The LP and the radio station or the cassette drew their attention. So they literally just played it on a whim. They got a kick out of the title and that's how it ended up on the album. I love it. I absolutely love yeah. it. Yes, me plow. Before we go on to the next one, talking about Dead and Bloated, it's almost like they heard our critique in some sort of future weird time space continuum because we said that Dead and Bloated would have been an incredible song had it been shortened by a couple minutes and not been repetitive, and me plow did just that. You can tell that the writing, where the writing is headed and what these songs are about further into the album, you can see there's an internal rhyme structure here mm. that is actually pretty cool. The way that he talks about his lover doing this and his yeah, brother yeah. doing that, I almost wanted like a triplet of it to talk about his mother. Well, I'm not entirely sure what the lover showed him and what the brother showed him. I like the lyrical uh, gymnastics that he was doing there. The second song on the album is a little ditty called Vaseline, spelled V-A-S-O-L-I-N-E. It was a big, big, big hit on radio. It was the second single released from the album. It eventually did reach number one for two weeks. It was one of their longer lasting radio hits. Now, you accused me last episode of being uh, allergic allergic to singles, singles, you said. I take umbrage to that, especially with a song like this. You didn't last week. I take umbrage with this album. This album does very few things wrong. It does a couple, but very few things wrong. This song, it's a single. I'm glad it's a single. It does what a single is supposed to do. And for whatever reason, I just don't get bored. That intro, the way it kicks in, the guitar sound, the way Scott starts singing, the way the, the guitar changes, and then the, that drum beat behind, the bass slap, and everything. This song is a, just a gut punch rock song. I never tire of it. It's immune to singleitis. Like Vaseline, the singleitis slips off of it. That is a wonderful description of this song. Ryan, three points for you in our imaginary game that we just started playing. <laughs> Thanks for letting me know the rules, boy. (laughs) You have to say things that I like, Ryan. That's how it works. I lose every episode we record, but go on. Vaseline was a very, very popular single. Uh, It was one of their two number ones on the rock charts. Scott says that the song is about him feeling like an insect under a magnifying glass. What we have here is he's actually struggling with drugs. On Core, we talked about Scott Weiland's complicated thoughts about women about religion, about himself and the thoughts that he's having. On Purple, we hear only his thoughts about heroin. 
Yeah. <laughs> this song has the, it, you know, it has the, it has the repetitive kind of stuck in the same rut. It's exciting and it's good for three minutes, but would you want to live in that song with that sort of thing going uh, on and on? That's what Scott says he was writing about. He's got this constant cycle of being stuck and being a junkie, really not living a new situation. He's living the same situation over and over again. There is a really cool solo in this song. So again, we have Scott doing that almost a side mouth singing all the time. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, and I think some of this comes to the inspiration of this album. That sort of singing out of the side of your mouth thing, that's a country music thing. Hmm. It's a more folksy and a more down-home way of country crooning. In Canada, do you guys have any awareness of American country music at all? Oh, we love it up here. I you don't listen it to it, there. but there's a huge country fan base. Canadian, we have our own country stars, of course, country uh, singers. Of, I can't name any because I'm an idiot, but there are many country stars. I just don't listen to that genre of music, so I, I wouldn't be able to name you five artists from Canada. Well, Shania Twain, of course, in the early 90s or mid-90s was a big uh, country pop star. We have, on over, Ryan. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's right. I mean, she was, right. boy, those videos, oh, man. Yeah, easy to look at. There was a very popular music video about this song that came out around the time. It played into a lot of the tropes of music videos sure. in the, the mid-90s. There was like a clown. There. Of course. <laughs> like a creepy clown, like a doink the clown on steroids or something, on some sort of drugs. There were these very quick shots of insects right. and a girl catching butterflies. I think that's what they talk about, you know, in this whole Vaseline aspect. He says he purposefully misspelled Vaseline as a portmanteau of Vaseline and gasoline. The gel is Vaseline with an E, not an O. Mm -hmm. And gasoline, obviously, is an oil-based product that uh, is highly flammable. So may have wanted to make a reference to the chemical weapon known as napalm. There we are with that. The um, video was creepy, as a lot of them were. It ends with Scott walking through a waterfall of blood. Lovely. Correct. Love it. Okay, so now number three, Loungefly. They pushed themselves to new limits, new sounds in this album where they did not repeat really anything on what they did on core. They really pushed new sounds, new uh, directions. I would argue that they did. In what way? We'll get to it. Well, I was going to say every song, but this is... Oh, okay. Yeah, no, no. Yeah, it probably will speak into what my worst pick might be. But Oh, I know what your worst no, pick is. No, you probably don't. Yes, I, I do. Yes, okay, I do. what I want you to do is I want you to write it down right now, and then you can reveal it to me after I pick it, and then we'll know if you got it right. You think that I'm going to say one thing, but it's okay. definitely the other thing. Okay, write down first what you think I'm going to say, and then write down what you know I'm going to say. What you think I think you're going to say. <laughs> there you correct, go. Okay. Correct, correct. <laughs> Holy, this is like Inception. Exactly. exactly. Love- what do you think that I'm thinking that you're thinking? Exactly. Okay. All right, here, here we go. Writing it down. I'm going to write it down your pick. Let's see here. Okay. I think that you can figure it can, out. Can we do two choices? Two cho- Is that fair? Out of 11 songs, two choices? Are you going to make me do a top three again? Oh, yeah. Time? You got to have a top okay, three. Okay. All right. All right. All right. So, yeah. Go ahead, and, go ahead and do two. I don't need to. I know exactly which song you hate. 
Okay. Ryan, Ryan, I knew it You're last wrong. time too. You're wrong. I knew it last time too. You're wrong. I think you think you think that I know what you're thinking, but you're wrong. So this is my pick. I'm just gonna write this down. Okay. This will definitely be your top two. And this one. Oh, well, maybe this one. Okay. This is kind of a dark horse. If you pick this one, I hate you. But the one I think you're going to pick for sure. <laughs> but you will definitely invite me on another episode. <laughs> we'll see. Okay, here we go. Lounge Fly. If there's a top three songs, this is it. I Lounge Fly is in my top three. There you go. So Ooh, this is. I had top three. Yeah, well, we don't really want to do that too, too much. I'll just say this one is. I, we've often just say what our maybe our favorite song is, maybe two songs, because we don't want to obviously, like we say that 10 times, and obviously the 11th one that we didn't say was our favorite song would be our worst pick. <laughs> okay, here we yep. go. Lounge Fly. What an intro. I just love that sound. I do love the I was going to ask you, since you played the intro, yeah. what is that instrument? I heard it was a, a, a tape, like a tape rewind. So it's just a backwards effect. So you could, Oh, you, so it's something they did in post-production? Yeah, I don't think you could you could um, do that part live necessarily. It's I don't sandpaper to me, you know, like really good sounding sandpaper. <laughs> yeah, I think it just kind of sets the mood. It sets the mood of the song. Even when you hear that for the first time, like, where's this song going to go? And then it just kicks in with that. I love the way he, this is a speak-sing song that we've talked about. This. I completely agree. It sounds like he's reading a poem. Yeah. But boom, 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 boom. I just love the way he's able to do that, but still make it sound. It's hard to, I said a thousand times on the show, I can't sing a note to save my life. But to even to be able to kind of talk sing, you got to be able to do that without it making it sound like you're just talking lounge fly set me up for what this vibe was going to be this is a guy's just riffing but he certainly knows the rhythm that he's going to sing in and that's sort of more important than the words this actually has some of the more intricate words and uh, lyrics in a lot of the songs here i really enjoy some of it and it builds it's a five minute Mm. song that takes all of that five minutes and 18 seconds to get where it's going. There's no boring part in the song at all. It's five minutes long, but they pack, like you said, so much into it. I guess it's officially their longest song because uh, Kitchenware and Candy Bar is uh, taxed on the hidden track for time length. So Loungefly is the longest song. But again, unlike the Dead and Bloated from their first album, this it, it just has it time changes. It has song, And we're going to go to that time change right now where... It's almost like, oh, we got a different song going on here. The lyrics at the end of the song where he keeps repeating, uh, she said she'd be my Mm. woman, she said she'd be my man. Those were lyrics from an earlier Mighty Joe Young song. I have to go on YouTube. I bet you there's some demos out there of that stuff. 
there are some demos. Also, there's this great ending guitar solo that you may be teeing up here. Do you know that the actual performer on this solo is not a Stone Temple Pilot? Is this my pick or is this your pick? You're like, oh my goodness. I really, really love doing the research, Ryan. I admit, some of my research is pretty lacking. I apologize. I'm not, we've established this. I'm more the feeling guy. How does it make me feel? Am I tap my foot? Am I enjoying it? You're a very good researcher. That's almost like your job in real life. Very close. Yeah. <laughs> so it's something that you're good at. No, I appreciate it. But that's like the one piece of trivia that I had for this song. So let me All say right, it. So tell me everything you know about Paul Leary. Okay. Well, he's a butthole surfer. You're damn right he is. Okay, that's the name of the band, guys. Just so you know, nobody adds me. I didn't. I didn't name call him. He's from a band called the Butthole Surfers that I heard about even back in the '90s. Just because that name is so memorable. Unbeknownst to me, it wasn't uh, Dean Dean DeLeo that played this. It was uh, their friend, friend of the band, plays the outro in this, the solo and the outro, which you'll hear right now. Great solo, so good job to uh, Mr. Leary on that. And the drums, though, you listen to that drum behind that. It's like a tribal type, just the way it just bounces all over the place. I just love it. Hats off to Kurtz on that. Absolutely. I think there's a lot of room for some great solos in this. And I don't know if you would consider what the drummer does as a solo, but he outshines all of it on this song. There is some notable drums on some later songs, and he really switches it up and shows what he can do with different instruments and, and whatnot. It's a drum-driven song, and I really, really, really enjoyed it. Sorry for stepping on your toes with my bit of trivia. That's okay. It's uh, like I said, I've that was the my peak research. That was it. That I was gonna shine on that one, but uh, oh well. I want you to tell us as much as you can about the butthole surfers. I really think this is important. That's all I know. (laughs) We've exhausted my knowledge. I and and again with uh, with my research on this album. I've never Googled the album. I just listened to it. Again, thought that was Dean the whole time. So again, I've had two things occur to me on this research. Is that my second album is not a song at all by the band. The guitar solo at the end of Loungefly, a great part, by the way, but they uh, gave that to their friend, so it's fun. Really great part and an uncredited feature role. I just don't know if in 1994 rock bands were featuring people and crediting them in that way. It might have been the liner notes. I never saw it. All right, number four is a song called Interstate Love Song. What do you call freeways in Canada? Highways? Highways, yeah. Freeway, I know. I wonder if that's more of an American thing than Canadian. You don't have interstate? No, no, we don't have interstates. We have interprovincial. Yeah. (laughs) I'm going to sound like an idiot. People that are Canadian are going to be like, of course, Ryan, there's freeways in Canada. You're an idiot, which is true. Again, I've never said I'm not an idiot. I'm just saying where I'm from in Victoria, there's highways, absolutely. And they're labeled as such, but I don't think anything's labeled as a freeway. Freeway kind of denotes a larger piece of highway or more lanes, maybe. 
That's an interesting discussion. I have never had any sort of a distinction between a freeway and a highway. An interstate is clearly something like we have Interstate 70 that goes from Colorado to Maryland. That's an interstate. Highways can be like state highways. Freeways are clearly just a differentiation between a free road and a toll road. I sure wish there was some sort of tool that we could use where you you put in your question or query and some sort of pre-research would come up and you could read it. My tool for this is my authoritative source on all things Canadian, Ryan Rabalkin. Okay. Well, here we go. All freeways, Drew, all freeways are highways, but not every highway is a freeway. I like that. A freeway is a controlled access highway, also known as an express highway. That's designed exclusively for car traffic or vehicle traffic. Traffic flow on a freeway is unhindered because there are no traffic lights, signals, intersections, or at-grade crossings with other roads, railroads, and pedestrian paths. So the main difference between freeways and multiple highways is that in the case of freeways, these roads are separated from the rest of the traffic and can be accessed by ramps. Ah, yes. So we have freeways in Canada. We just often don't refer to them because, of course, we have (laughs) off-ramps. But that's what it means. Wait a second. Wait a second. We let you have off-ramps? I know. You finally get – thank you, America, for giving Canada off-ramps. We appreciate that. So there you go. Off-ramps. That's your key. So a highway doesn't have to have an off-ramp. What we have here, number four on Stone Temple Pilots Purple is a song about off-ramps. Yes. Scott Weiland's love of off-ramps, his tendency to deceive them and let them down. Actually, Interstate Love Song was released in September of 1994. It's the third single off of Purple. It is an instantly iconic song almost no matter where you jump in. You listen to the beginning and you sort of have that ramp up with an incredible, incredible bass performance and then lead guitar performance. If you isolate the vocals, as you might do in Scott Weiland's acoustic performance on the BBC, he really, really shines both singing and humming. His lyrics here are secondary. Things that he does with his voice, the simplicity really of the way that the band interacts together. opening it reminds you of the the country rock inspiration of some of the songs on this album this and one of the other singles very heavily inspired by blues and country rock the guitars are not playing over each other the instruments are not fighting with each other it almost seems the sounds are inherently existing together and they know when one comes in and one comes out this is only a three minute and 14 second song it's just purely packed with 
these hooks. There's a guitar hook. There's, you know, all of the different lyrical things he does. Obviously, this song was a monster hit. It debuted at number one, taking the spot of Vaseline. Hmm. It was number 18 on the top 100. Probably the biggest hit of Stone Temple Pilots' career, just in terms of that sort of thing. It's obviously got longevity. It has a lot of genre inspirations that spoke to me at that time. I told you that I was a big listener of the radio. Well, one of the things that I listened to on the radio when I didn't get to choose the station, it was country music. Mm. And that's something that brought me to this song because it did not sound like all of the other Stone Temple Pilots songs. It sounded inspired by some of those other genres. Great bass line by Rob there, too. Really hearing the bass on this remastered version of the album. To remind everyone that we're listening to the re-released version that came out, I believe, in 2019 for the 25th anniversary. I'm listening to it on Apple Music. This is a single, and I'm not going to say anything other than I know it's a single, and I get why it's a single. It is a great single. It's a great song. It's not boring at all. It doesn't suffer from plush-itis. It does not suffer from creep-itis for me. I think it's aged better than those songs, absolutely. Again, so as a single, it's a stronger single. I recognize why it has longevity. It showcases Scott's singing abilities and the uh, the composition skills of the DeLeo brothers, specifically Rob, who does most of the compositions of these songs. So, yeah, I mean, I don't really have anything bad to say about it. I'm not trying to trick anyone here or anything. I'm just telling the truth. I get the song, and I get it is why it is. Does the song speak to you, Ryan? I can never relate with the interstate, so. (laughs) There's been this rift between you and off-ramps that we just haven't been able to figure out. I do miss making out in a car, though. I I did that as a teenager, and uh, boy. As a, a young kid, I definitely knew this song before I knew the name. You're not going to tag off my line. I've, I miss making out in cars, Drew. I, the beauty of being young and driving, you're 16 years old, you got a date in the car, and you know, I, I'm sure I played this song with a girl in the car. Was I supposed to call you old here? I think so. I think that's okay. what that's why I've just, in, I've just aged myself. <laughs> why would they name it this? I, I think the, the word interstate sort of indicates perhaps a long distance thing yes. or perhaps a like a longing that you have for a person. Or in this instance where you can tell the point of view of the song is someone that has lied and been lied to. These are the overwhelming tropes of this song. The conversations that we had and the untruths that I told you, it's not exactly an apology. It is a regret in the instance of regretting the misdeeds that have been done. The lyrics of this song, he ends the first chorus with all of these things you said to me. Mm. And that's very iconic. Everyone sings that part. He ends the second chorus with all of these things I said to you, right? Yeah, right. So it sort of comes full circle. This was a toxic relationship on both parts, right? That was very interesting to me because there is the very, very famous BBC recording of the acoustic version. And it's on this deluxe album that we're listening to. The acoustic version of this song that was released and was popularly played on radio, and I think I downloaded it on 
Kazaa back in the day. Right. He does not change the lyric. He repeats all of these things you said to me. Hmm. Well, obviously the girl is the problem, as is usually the, the case. The, the, the girls girl is are the liar, right? And if she's got something to say to Scott, she could write her own song. But uh, <laughs> write your own song. Well, clearly this was a song that, that Scott wrote about his trouble with addiction and his lies to his uh, at this point this was specifically his lies to his significant other who was his wife at the time mm. the video for this song is <laughs> i dare say very on the nose okay. the video of this song features like a mime type character and a silent movie he gets kicked out of his home with a woman and at that time his nose starts growing he starts being hunted by some unseen forces. There's a helicopter at one point. Sure. Uh, the band drives out to the desert, and Scott dances around with a pink, feathery jacket. Very iconic. And all the while, this Pinocchio-type character, the nose just keeps growing. I think he jumps into a ditch or something. Presumed dead, the Pinocchio mime-type character from the Interstate Love Song video. Song five still remains... stop it oh okay. don't stop it i know i just i'm sorry again we have to love this song so much it just i know something about the way he sings the guitar strum like the guitar tone the strumming of the sound i just sway back and forth it's almost like a slow song but it's not a slow song but you can slow dance to the song almost you know like the way it just goes back and forth and i can just picture myself like on a beach you know, with my, again, teenage days, you know, on the beach with my girl or driving the summer night drive or something. It's just this song. It's just, uh, it's, a, it's a romantic song in a weird way. That's what I wrote down. Oh, really? Romantic song. Yeah. Yeah. It, it is. It really is. It's, a, it's ironically, it, maybe this is the love song. And I was going to also, I hate it when I say it. I was going to say, I, I always edit that stuff out, by the way, because it's redundant. I'm going to say something. Here I go. Here I go. I'm going to say it. <laughs> I'm more, I'm, I don't even notice what you edit out about me. I'm sure you edit out all the sort of. I do. I do. Any, if, yeah, well, it's for everyone that I record with. Anything, anyone that says like, sort of, you know, that's all edited out. Anyways, okay. okay. So, so that's it. <laughs> I just said so, and I edit out all my so. So, here we go. So, Still Remains, Ironic, was not a single. And it's, no. it's this song where it would have ruled as a single. I think it would have been an amazing single. I think it could have been interchanged with Interstate Love Song. And again, Interstate Love Song does suffer for me personally because I've been listening to I've been listening to this album for 25 years. It's not the fault of the song. So I'm just being honest. It does suffer a little bit from single-itis because I've, 
I'm so aware of its airplay, its video play, its uh, much music MTV play. I wonder alternate universe Ryan would feel the same way about Still Remains had that been the single and not Interstate Love Song. I don't know if I can imagine this being a single. Really? I understand a certain strategy with rock bands and slow songs. You want to release it as the second single off of an album. You want to have a song that sounds like your stuff, and then you want to release your attempt at a slow song, and you have this third single lined up that also sounds like your rock and roll stuff that you're sort of ready to unleash if the slow song doesn't take off. So I'm not entirely sure if Still Remains would have been that second single spot. Maybe not. Been instead of... It would have been like Big Empty and then Still Remains. I, you don't go too No, no, no. Like well, they went big. Well, so now we kind of spoiled it. Big Empty was the first single. There well, we yeah, that's not a spoiler. Yeah, we didn't mention it yet. We were going to say we're going to tell what song it was, so we didn't say it yet. So that's just sort of my thing is maybe in the planning, it would certainly go as a fourth single. Maybe, yeah. Um, after, and yeah, yeah, I think so. Because really, really enjoy the lyrics here. You see that he's, he's talking about flowers a lot. There's flowers all over the thing. He gets really image filled he says a yellow nectar ring he says what was the other one he says something about orange yeah orange blossoms he's being very very descriptive and very illuminating for what he's talking about obviously you've got one of the all-time lines ryan i did not know that the stone table pilots podcast would cross over with our celebrity items for sale podcast Mm. but i want to talk to you about take a bath i'll drink the water that you leave who did that again? Who who bottled their water? Who was- that was our Gamer Girl Bathwater <laughs> podcast. That's our Gamer Girl. I, I, if I recall correctly, I got you to admit that you currently own two bottles of Gamer Girl Bathwater. Mm. That, that's that's accurate. Still no, this- one. I, dr- I drank one of them. I had to. You drank <laughs> for strength and vitality. Uh, yeah. <laughs> So Still Remains, however, is a great companion to Interstate Love Song. Those two go hand in hand. I think they're good companion pieces. Obviously, the track listing in order was intentional. So I think that was their intention there. I have actually heard and seen some discussion about the placement of the songs on this album. We had a short discussion previously about how Core seemed it was a very intentionally planned album, where the singles were positioned and what was between them and how it ended and this and that. I believe that this album falls into the same category. I think that this was a different era when plans were made to put the songs in a certain order. And that may be the explanation for why things are where they are. There was a really cool part at about 2.20. Yeah, well, again, this is my – would you stop? This is it's my – okay that I know where the good stuff is. That was my – again, I timestamped that same thing. Now people aren't going to – sound like church bells at that point. That's what I really like. So go ahead and play that part. <laughs> Such clever lyrics and clever word placement. Drink the wine, save the wine. I I love that lyric. I love the way it sounds, the way it's delivered. It's just a... And then again, he says, skin is smooth. I steal a glance. Dragonflies are gliding over. So he's talking about flowers and fruits and dragonflies. It's a beautiful song. 
it's just in terms of his choices on this one, much different than some of the other ones where we'd be like, um, you know, simple lyrics or whatever, bugs in a jar, this and that. No, no, he's painting a picture here. He really is. This song, very hippie-like. It's almost like I can see the flowers and the hair in 1960s, free love. It's, and I, I think he was drawing from that imagery. That It's just so, it makes me feel peaceful. I agree. They have some songs where they certainly get louder and they certainly do some different things with collaborations of the guitars and the grunge style or the alt rock style or whatever they're moving into. This one stays pretty consistent. Probably the closest thing to a romantic song or love song. All right. Number six is a promotional single that was released from this album. It was not made into a music video. It was not actually charted in any real official way. This is a song called Pretty Penny. The song is definitely a a departure from any sort of grunge rock or alt rock sounding. The guitars are not crunchy and distorted in the way that they are in the other songs. This is very, very different from the song that precedes it and the song that follows it. But it is a song that is, again, about drugs. Again, does have some pretty clear references to a girl that is uh, unfortunately involved in drugs and how that goes for her. Gone, when you wake in the morning, gone. When you find that there's no one sleeping, gone. Pretty Penny was her name. She was loved and we all will miss her. How far will you go? At first listen, if not Stone Temple Pilots, who does this remind you of, Ryan? Yes, this is probably where they... Just for the record, I am on the fence with my pick, which will be very interesting to see which one you wrote down. And don't reveal... I'm not going to look at your head or your eyes because I can see you on camera, but I'm going to say this for our audio audience, that I would assume this was one of your two picks. But don't confirm or deny with any kind of verbal because I'm, I'm looking away. I'm guessing what you guessed that I was going to guess, that you guessed. You put Pretty Penny as one of my top two worst songs, or if not even the worst song. And the note right here, and I'm not changing it. I'm letting you know. Okay. I'm going to put it put it right here. Okay. So that being, <laughs> that being said, it's a well-crafted song, well-sung song, whatever, but it draws, or too much, unintentionally so, maybe, from uh, Nirvana's Cracker. Wow. That's where you yeah. went with it. Nirvana's Cracker. Yeah. Is there anyone that you think Nirvana's Cracker was inspired by? <laughs> Maybe. Go, please do tell. Perhaps the biggest band of the 1960s? Well, the Beatles. That's the Beatles song, baby. Which Beatles song? Legion Wood, This Bird Has Flown. Oh, I love that song. The sitar. The sitar really only shows up in, in certain songs. <laughs> like anything after they went to India, literally. Yeah, <laughs> but, yeah. But yeah, yeah, George got into the sitar, and, and I mean, John was going nuts already, so yeah, that just added to it. That's fantastic. Good, good. That's a great poll. Yeah, I hear it now, absolutely. I couldn't listen to this song without thinking Beatles rip off. When you hear later Stone Temple Pilot songs, oh, I, I don't know, a lot 
the stuff on songs from Vatican Gishop. Yeah. I thought that they were going in this way. What this song is classified is, it's called a psychedelic rock song. Mm, sure. It's called a folk rock song. Did you happen to listen to the second Panic at the Disco album? Pretty odd. No, I, I've never heard any. They of made stuff. the same mistakes that Stone Temple Pilots make on this song. For a Stone Temple Pilots song, it's fine, but you know, it very, very clearly harkens to what was going on there 30 years ago. I just like that hypnotic bridge that they do there. I think that's one of the better parts of that song. But I will admit, I don't really think I like sitar. Oh, okay. Fair enough? Well, of course it's fair enough. Look, this is not a perfect album, but it's if I had to give it a score out of 100, I don't know, 95. Even my worst pick, I don't, if somebody didn't skip it. Like on the core album, again, I'll be happy if I never hear Creep or Plush again. I'll be happy. To this day, I will for never, I'll never put it on, on purpose. I'm sorry, I'll die never hearing it again from me hitting play. But this album, I could have on random without access to skipping a song, and I wouldn't freak out. That's the difference between the two albums for me. And it's good to have that confidence in what you like and what you don't like. And clearly you came at these songs much differently than I did. And you had an ear for what you liked. And I had an ear for what what was on. (laughs) (laughs) Track seven, Silver Gun Superman. Great titles on this whole album. This is one of my favorite titles. This is probably the best Superman song ever written. And yes, that means you crash test dummies. the song i truly do i think you probably knew that i love the song yeah i did i just love the way he, he sings that low singing tenor and then he kicks in with this high with the chorus and we gotta hear that little sitar going on in the background <laughs> i don't know if that's a little sitar sound did you catch that did my, not catch it you, you're trying to put this on my shit list man no no i'm not i am not <laughs> i i just love the song the way he sings it and it kicks into a amazing solo and this is of course this is dean a nice long solo, but I'm going to play it anyways because I don't care. You wanted to make sure I didn't call that one out. This is me. This is my timestamp.
Wicked Soul at I the love end. That solo. Yeah, it's a great song, great rock song, and anytime you can mention Superman in a song is always bonus in my books. <laughs> He's my favorite comic book hero. So your lo- favorite comic book yeah. hero. So we're almost leaving the Stone Temple Pilots conversation altogether. <laughs> but would you consider uh-huh. the Three Doors Down song Kryptonite? a Superman song. Yeah, I, I would say so. You can't say Kryptonite not associated with Superman. Is Kryptonite better than the song? No. No, okay. What about the 2002 smash hit by rapper Eminem, Superman? No. <laughs> All right, so it's just down to the Stone Temple Pilots and the Crash Test Dummies probably. Yeah, Crash Test Dummies is a great song. It's a great, That's song. a great song. And that yeah. is a great song about Superman. But Five for fighting can go jump in a lake. Okay. Oh, stop it. <laughs> <laughs> Silver Gun Superman is a fantastic song. It's back to the very traditional Stone Temple Pilots style after that Pretty Penny interlude. What I enjoyed was the overuse almost of the idiom, you towed the line. I think it's really, really fun when bands use idioms, turns a phrase like that. And Stone Temple Pilots does it again later in this album. And I'm, but I really, really enjoy when they use that as like a repetitive part of their chorus. There's a band that I really like called Anne Berlin that does that quite often. It's a very easy way to relate to a song. You know what that idiom means. And it sort of makes you grin a little bit when you see how they're speaking. They're saying one thing, but you know what they mean. In the instance of Scott Weiland's drug issues, do you think towed the line mm. might mean something else as well? Or towed line. Oh, I see. Line of cocaine. Yeah. That would be right. Yeah, that yeah. Would be right. Was towed the wet sprocket a thing at this point? Seven different possibilities for what he means here when he says towed the line. Maybe Are you a fan of towed the wet sprocket? You'll find out during our next podcast, oh, the no. worst of the best. Host, the, yeah, <laughs> hosted exclusively by you. Yeah. Just, just Drew Solo talking about a band he doesn't know much about. Oh, man. <laughs> I really enjoyed Silver Gun Superman. The next song is the one that we've been alluding to all along. This is a song called Big Empty. It was the lead single off of the Crow soundtrack. It was the only single on the Crow soundtrack. It was a song that was released as a single from the Crow soundtrack three months before the Stone Temple Pilots Purple album was released. It is definitely something that set off this album to sort of have the big sales that it did and the big radio performance that it did. The song actually was performed live on the MTV Unplugged episode in November of 93. I really enjoyed that Unplugged episode because, you know, it wasn't this hard-hitting grunge guitars. I really think that my parents at the time for a nine-year-old were okay with me watching an acoustic performance as opposed to like a live concert of mosh pits and whatnot. Seeing this song performed acoustically was really, really nice in that original session. The interesting thing about this song is that they never made a video for this Mm. song. Despite it being the lead single off of a big hit movie that had this very interesting imagery of this goth superhero who was resurrected rock star that's who the crow was a resurrected musician Mm -hmm. who uh wanted to avenge the death of his wife and child i believe they'd never made a video that had stp in the crow world you remember those videos yeah yeah yeah, of course 
Nicolas Cage and the Goo Goo Dolls video for City of Angels. I got to pull up my uh, naming other bands bingo card. We've got Goo Goo Dolls, Fire for Fighting, Told the Wet Sprocket, Third Eye Blind, Beatles. <laughs> you stopped me from saying the next things on my list because I do want to discuss this. Uh, Smashing Pumpkins. Oh, here we go. That was my <laughs> last, the last one I needed. There that was it. Bingo! Pumpkins. Bingo! <laughs> the first Spider-Man movie had a soundtrack that had a hit single named Hero from your favorite band, Canada's own Nickelback. All right. We've totally derailed this episode. This is we plugged <laughs> we, we brought up Nickelback, and I think that's an automatic I've actually sort of made a rule that we're gonna talk about Nickelback on every episode we do from here on out. This will be your last episode if that's the case. I'm going to be one for one in my search for Nickelback. <laughs> When it comes to soundtracks, I thought that this was very interesting in the growth of STP and the sales of this album, that they would be the only single off of this soundtrack. The soundtrack also included bands like Nine Inch Nails, The Mm -hmm. Cure, Pantera, Rage Against the Machine, The Violent Femmes. When you get put on a soundtrack with these other bands, you are telling the audience that you are part of this sort of genre that sort of defines this movie. It sort of creates new genres that's not grunge, that's not hairband, that's not metal. Hmm. It's the bands that make music that fits for this movie. And there were other bands during this time or other songs and soundtracks during this time that sort of showed the thing. I really enjoyed some soundtracks in the mid-90s, like the Space Jam soundtrack. Some soundtracks like the aforementioned Smashing Pumpkins Batman soundtrack. These were ones that put songs together so that I could be introduced to new bands that fit a certain mold with the ones that I liked. And again, I was very young when these things happened. The Crow soundtrack sold 3 million albums, almost 4 million albums. So clearly they were doing something right. Ryan, what's your thought on soundtracks? Are you okay with the movie production company to tell you what songs should go in your movies? Kind of like, obviously, a greatest hits package. But yeah, it's a various artist package for a film that fits the tone of the film. Did you find that Stone Temple Pilots fit the tone of the Crow film? You know what? I saw the Crow film in the theaters. I'm a huge Stone Temple Pilots fan when it, this album came out. like I didn't know that this was a single. I didn't know this was a single, let alone on the Crow soundtrack. I didn't even know that. Wow. So to answer your question, I've never once bought a movie soundtrack that had the various artists on it. I, however, have bought and enjoy the score soundtracks. I love that. Oh, yeah. I appreciate knowing that. Who's your favorite? Oh, who's your favorite score artist? I was uh, on Zimmer. I love some Hans Zimmer. Yeah, uh, Trevor Jones. Mm-hmm. The last one he can soundtrack makes me cry. Who did that one? Trevor Jones. That's Trevor Jones. Yeah. Okay. John Williams is a classic answer as well, right? He is. I'm not a big fan of him because I find he's always just John Williamsy. Again, the Gladiator soundtrack. Can you imagine that movie without that soundtrack? No. And I know no. people would argue that with Star Wars, but I feel like John Williams, he's created some incredible scores because I'm, I'm not a big Steven Spielberg fan. And I think that I associate Williams with Spielberg. And I'm not a big Spielberg I fan. I associate Williams with Lucas. Interesting. Well, yeah. because Lucas did Star Wars well, of and course. Indiana Jones. Those are the first two. And those are great scores, great themes. The Indiana Jones themes and yeah. Star Wars themes I, I love, but I'm not a big Spielberg fan. And John Williams has scored everything that Spielberg's done almost. So he that, certainly has. Anyways, yeah. all right. We're learning a lot this episode. And Thank you for indulging. Here's a little bit of Big Empty. Yeah. Tripping there.
You, okay. you cut it out before conversations kill, oh. but that's fine. I think that at the end of the day, this is the love child of Creep and Plush, that those two songs come together to create the vibe that we have here. No wonder this was a big hit, because those were both big hits. So after Big Empty, we come with the song Unglued, a perfectly apt name title for the level of energy that the song is, because now the band becomes a little bit unglued, and they're like, enough of that Big Empty. <laughs> First off, what a killer! This goes right away into this rock and song. If you hear this live at a concert, you're not you're not not moving. You are moving your feet, your hands. It's a jump around song for sure. Yeah, this was a radio promo, was it not? It was a radio promo, absolutely. Yeah. It got to number eight on the mainstream charts. Yeah, and it was performed live by my favorite talk show host, David Letterman. He's my <laughs> he's my favorite. If you like David Letterman humor, then you get my humor. That's probably the easiest way to. I think that's why you do top 10 lists and things like that. Yeah, there you go. I should do the worst of the best of top 10 lists. Okay. Just like 25 seconds after what we just, where we just stopped it, it kicks into a wicked guitar solo. The songs it's the sister or the cousin of Vaseline in many ways. It's short, quick, dirty, rocking, doesn't let up. If you skip the song, depart from my episode. Leave now if you skip the song. I really, really enjoy Unglued. Yeah. I almost think it's like a punk song. Mm. It just goes hard. Two minutes and 30 seconds. There's nothing wasted there. This <laughs> was the last song that Scott performed live. Really? one that he really enjoyed and i think he was playing it with his band in 2014 or 2015 mm. when he was touring uh, as a solo artist that this was the last one that he performed lives on almost the five-year anniversary of his passing he passed on december 5th 2015 so we are in the anniversary month i think that uh we can pour one out for scott for unglued and this promotional single that was uh, one of his favorites. And it breaks my heart that he's passed. Ugh, I hate that. It breaks my heart, but with everything that was going on in the 90s with uh, artists like him, we could almost say that he was lucky to make it as long as he did. Yeah, we still had four albums after this one with the band. We were, we were blessed with so much yeah. that he did after that. There are some great live performances that yeah. like Hard Rock. 2010 that he did when he came back to the band people really enjoyed that 2010 album that mm -hmm. they put out he lived longer than lane staley and kurt cobain so uh, so number 10 is a song called army ants this is a song that is not a single 
It is about three minutes and 46 seconds long. It's one of the longer songs on the album. It has an absolutely beautiful intro. Scott starts off yelling in the song at first, but he then actually gets into singing like what he did on Pretty Penny and sort of like what he's done on different other songs. He's singing in a tone that we really haven't heard him sing in before, which is interesting that he changes things in these albums. There's a really fantastic bridge uh, at about two minutes long. And it, it's a song that has you know some good solos. It, I don't think that it ever would have made it to be a single, but it's a great, great B-side track. that the time change happens there and that solo it's just in the right ear too which is an interesting choice that's very interesting that they would do that i really enjoyed the bridge there that sort of sounds like a led zeppelin type of thing Hmm. or you know some some inspiration there i hear it in a lot of alt alt rock bands that i've listened to for 20 plus years i think it's beautiful i think it's a great way to string together some pretty louder and more energetic portions of their song well the last song on the album Kitchenware and Candy Bars, the most interesting titled song on the album. And in Canada, we actually call them chocolate bars. There's no such thing as a candy bar in in Canada? Well, they exist, but we call them chocolate bars. So yeah, just a little little trivia there. Canadians call it chocolate bars, but I was in the States for four years. I've mentioned that before with the posting for 2011 to 2015. I call pop soda now. From Ohio, I, I call it pop. Oh, there you go. Yeah, there are some eastern state or yeah, eastern states do kind of. It, it's it's very sporadic. It's like Midwest, but like half the Midwest. Yeah. Or you could just call it soda pop, and everyone kind of understands at that point. Kitchenware and candy bars. I'm just gonna say I love this song. I. I like it too. Oh, it's it's the build up. I'll edit this uh, intro guitar, it's a little bit long, but that's what I hear singing here. Sell me 
Okay, so this song has such an incredible build-up, and we're going to play the crescendo or the climax and the apex of this song. It's at the end of the album. This is an incredible album closer, and it ends with an emotional punch. I mean, granted, there's a hidden track, but we've already talked about that. But this is an incredible album closer. I just love the energy and the emotion that he sings, Scott sings at the end. At the 2 minute 45 second mark, we have very subtle string instruments kick in, and then that guitar solo, and the way he just, ah, the way he sings it at the end. I just, I am, just let me get it queued up. I love build-up songs. I just love them so much. And just the power at the end, just the way he sings in, that crunchy guitar that goes back to the uh, the string instruments kick in and just chills. Uh, yeah, crescendo songs are fantastic. But a crescendo song with a string section, mm. like, you got me. You got me. You made it happen. I wish they had a string section on eight of these songs instead of one. <laughs> I just love this song so much. So powerful, so emotional, and it just... Ugh. What an ender. What an ender to this uh, discussion and album. I absolutely love the song. I think that as far as his use of a repetitive idiom, fell me down the river. It's just one of these things that like a paranoid person thinks. It's one of these things that a sensitive and an internal sort of living person thinks is that at any point someone is going to turn on them. Someone is going to use their success for their own means. And it's almost folksy to, to use this term, sell me down the river. If he needed to make it any more clear, he's afraid of his own success. This is a, a song reflecting his internal thoughts about it. I think it's a fantastic song. I absolutely love the build. Everything about it appeals to me. It cuts off at about the 430 mark. And then we go into, uh, <laughs> what did you say, a 45 second yeah. you know, stoppage. And then we get some really weird but interesting and I think funny bonus song. Okay, we'll play it just for a little bit, just so we, people know what we're talking about. Again, this is not anyone from the band. This is a song that they heard during the recording of the album that they thought would be fun to 
to insert at the end of the album stating this is our second album so it's basically another artist talking about a second album they thought would be a great way to end it in a humorous way The second album Twelve precious melodies This would be the twelfth, I suppose. Hope you enjoy them Like if it's sung to me Listen to Twelve great tunes Playing on your stereo Sing soon, entertain on the piano. The second album. I could see Scott changing his voice to sound like that. He was certainly oh, capable. I think it's entirely in tune with his sense of humor. Yeah, exactly. It's 100% his sense of humor to do this sort of song where he talks about, please buy my, my new album, and this is not the style of music that it will be, but... I mean, he's got this song called Lounge Fly. This sounds like mm-hmm. a lounge singer. You know what I hear when I hear this? I hear at the Copa, Copa Cabana. That's what I hear when I hear this little ditty that they threw on at the end. But I really, really love it. It's a departure from everything, and I like it. I would dare say I like it more than I like Pretty Penny. But uh, <laughs> I have complicated thoughts about this album. Yes. I think they're all good. Maybe you feel like it. Oh, yeah, no, it's good. Okay, so I admit. Your remarks regarding Pretty Penny, I don't know if that was designed to throw me off my game. What so is your game, Ryan? I made a pick, my two picks for you. Because <laughs> I know you dislike lame songs, so I figured... <laughs> <laughs> so so I know that you hate singles. You know that I hate lame things. <laughs> <laughs> because I think maybe I'm more wrong than you. Go ahead and you tell me, can you name me the three songs that are in my bottom three, or just the two? <sighs> The three songs in your bottom three. Big Empty, Interstate, and Kitchenware. Kitchenware? Sure. Oh, no. I had to pick one. No, 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 no. So what did you say? I said Big Empty, Interstate, and Kitchenware. No, Kitchenware is... We, I just finished gushing oh, about that. I How got mu- two out of three. Okay. I got two out of three? Yeah. The most uh, easy thing on the planet to name your two out of three. I understand. I'm surprised you didn't throw in... What did you say? You Pretty Penny. I'm surprised you didn't throw that in. No, I think that you like Pretty Penny. This is just a fun game. There's no harm in because uh, I totally screwed up my guesses with you. Okay, so you got yeah, you got two out of three. No, I love Kitchenware. I guess because I just finished gushing about it, how much I loved it. I thought that you were putting on a. Uh, see, that, you we're overthinking it. No, no, I wouldn't lie to you. I wouldn't lie to you. My bottom three are. I think had I not played this game with you, I think you would have picked Interstate Love Song, which you did, Pretty Penny, and Big Empty. But Interstate Love Song. It suffers from singleitis, but that's why I was being objective by saying had suffers so- from being one of the most successful songs ever. Yes, suffers. It suffers. <laughs> <laughs> it's not my bottom two. There you go. Because it's a great song. It only suffers from being a single, and it's not that song's fault. So if I look at it objectively, it's a good song. It just doesn't get me moving, doesn't get me emotional like Kitchenware does. It doesn't get me grooving like Unglued does or banging my head like Vaseline does. That's no fault of its own, but still, not, to me, it's the middle of the pack of a great album, great song. Okay. So, yes, now we're down to Pretty Penny and Big Empty. And which one of those two is my pick? You wrote it down? Yes. Big Empty. It's Big Empty, obviously. Yeah. It was obvious. <laughs> <laughs> 
So the reason why I don't like Big Empty compared to Pretty Penny, Pretty Penny is pretty, pretty, Pretty Penny is pretty close to being the worst, but at least it's something a little bit different. It's acoustic, it has a little bit of harmony. At least it's it stands out enough that it's just different, even though it reminds me of Nirvana's Cracker. But it, and it does speak a little bit to the sound of the time. All those things work against it, but it's just enough of a different song and it's not very long. Well, it's actually three, almost four minutes long. Big Empty, it suffers from just being a little bit boring. It's just a boring song. The chorus does save it. The pre-chorus stuff is extremely boring. And then the chorus is good, but it's too repetitive. That song fell off the, this album. This would be a 98% album. It's a near perfect <laughs> album, but Big Empty is just not, and it's long. It's almost five minutes long. And if they shorten it through in a guitar solo, maybe it's just, it just takes forever to go nowhere. It went directly to number three on the Billboard mainstream rock charts. Okay. It went directly to the MTV Movie Award for Best Song in 1994. Can I guess your two worst? Play. You want to guess my bottom three. So we're not including my second album. We're just including the 11 from the original release. I don't think I'm going to get any of them right. I'm really confused. Your rundown of the album, I was, like, I was trying to look for weak spots too, and I was like, ugh. I didn't call anything a stupid funk song. No, you <laughs> didn't. Here's my bottom three for you. Still Remains, Silver Gun Superman, I think your worst pick is Army Ants. My friend, you were 0 for 3. I'm not surprised. Listening to you break down the album, I realized how wrong my picks were, my guesses were. Part of this, Brian, I uh, credit to you. What I have is is constantly evolving appreciation for uh, the album structure and the things that are not singles that have to exist on an album in order for an album to happen. What I do appreciate is how things build and how, well, Stone Temple Pilots is pretty consistent right now. They're going to give us this big epic of wandering seven-minute song at the end of their album. What I really, really liked about some of these songs that were not singles was that what they have been able to do is do a softer song that has a crescendo that has some really powerful chorus in it. And I was able to find that in almost all of these songs was that they built to a thing that they weren't, this is a loud song and this is a soft song. There's none of those. They're all both, or at the very least have some indicator of them. My bottom three in no particular order, okay. bottom three, pretty penny. Meat Plow, Big Empty. To choose the least favorite out of all of them, I had to make sure that I wasn't doing the very obvious thing. Well, what was very obvious last time, right? We did core. And what did I choose? I choose the standout one-minute spoken word album where he talks about wetting his bed. Right. And you told me that their biggest hit single off that album was worse than the Wet My Bed song. That's what you told me. Yes, I would listen to Wet My Bed any day of the week over Plush. I would take the spoken word wet my bed over no you didn't pick plush you picked creep oh yeah that one yeah creep that's right sorry plush is at least more that's right more electric more fun yeah creep was absolutely a bore fest you rank the whole thing you go man if I have to hear creep one more time give me wet my bed yeah that's what you said okay in this situation I'm looking at the very obvious answer and I have to challenge myself on the, the very obvious answer here is pretty penny they tried a new thing I don't think they did it great. Mm-hmm. But my least favorite on this album is Meat Plow. Whoa! That is, that is the worst of the best on this album. I think they kicked it off wrong. Hmm. I told you I didn't like the title. I told you I thought it was like one of these 
remnants of the mid nineties where things were referred to as you talk about your man meat, this and that. I, it never appealed to me at the age of 10. It doesn't appear to appeal to me in my thirties. This was sort of the thing that I think Scott was supposed to be going against referring to his junk in some euphemistic term. And uh, I never saw it as a sexual thing, honestly, until your discussion about it. Everybody that talks about what a meat plow could be puts it in those terms. I've never had a conversation with anyone about what it would be, honestly, till till you and I talked. Well, I appreciate being the first one that you talk to about these things, but I don't think that you should assume that that you're the first one that I talk to about. (laughs) I'm glad you've talked about meat plows with other men. Uh, All right. Any instance that I can. Well, that is awesome. Okay. Well, I appreciate that. I appreciate you, Drew, and I appreciate your humor and your wit and your research. Well, remember, in front of every silver lining, there's a cloud, and we're here to help you find it. Thanks so much, Drew. Take care, brother. What a beautiful, beautiful wrap-up to our convo about purple. I'll talk to you next year, probably. (laughs) Yeah. Cheers, brother. Bye. Camelgator Productions.